Hi, and welcome to Season 5 of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hi, everybody. It's Bob again. I've got Leading Change, How Successful Leaders Approach Change Management. I've got Paul Lawrence on the line today. Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, We had a lot of fun getting Paul on the show. Uh, You're way down in Australia. Is it Sydney you're in? That's right, yeah, Sydney, Australia. So, and it's coming up on the beginning of winter because you're in a different different hemisphere. Well, that's right, yeah, although winter in Sydney is um, still quite pleasant usually. <laughs> it's kind of like the, uh, would you consider the LA of, of Australia? I don't know LA well enough. I've only been to LA once, so yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, let's tickle, you know, let's just dig into your book right now. Um, why did you think this book was needed at this time? There's lots and lots of models, um, change models. I do, I do ongoing research and, and forever people are saying to me that these models, that they're somehow not enough, there's something missing. And that kind of voice seems to have grown in volume over the last couple of years where at least here in Sydney and, and the people I'm speaking to talk about things getting more and more complex and, and them having less and less time. Um, the academic literature is actually really quite critical of a lot of the um, kind of standard change models. Mm. Um, and I noticed that, or have noticed that, although the models get taught a lot in, in MBA courses and executive education, leaders don't seem to use them. So there was something going on, and and I wanted to understand that. And rather get into a, a, an overly conceptual prescriptive space, I thought, well, what do successful leaders actually do? Let's start there. Mm. Um And so the book is based on a piece of research. I I interviewed 50 people. Half of them are CEOs. They're they're people from all over the world um, to really find out, well, how how do people actually do it? When it does go well, what do they do? What what is it they're doing? So, I mean, it it was interesting. You you mentioned there are lots and lots of books out there, but nobody's really using them. What do you think the fundamental cause of that is? Is because people are just tired of the same thing again and again and again, and they just need a fresh perspective like you're approaching it, or they just don't have enough time to read the books and, and get the information? I did a separate piece of research where I spoke to about 50 OD and change managers about this, and they said, look, um, those models are fine, actually. They're, they're, they're useful, they're helpful, but they're very linear, and they, they portray change as you do this, then you do this, then you do this, and by the time you get to step seven or step eight, then all you need to do is is just embed change, whatever that means. And what they're telling me is they're not saying those books are not useful. They're saying they're, they're very helpful in terms, of the, in terms of planning change. But there's all this other messy stuff. There's all this people stuff. And and that's where there really doesn't th- those kinds of models don't really address that stuff sufficiently. Mm. Well, yeah, I, you know, just saying that makes so much more sense because every plan will fail as soon as you start it. And these books that are say, if you do A, then obviously you're going to do B. But you start with A, and suddenly it's like, oh, holy crap! I've got like twenty things, twenty-seven things that they haven't taught me about that I have to do before I even get close to B. And it's, I think people just get frustrated out of being able to actually implement any change. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And, and that's, that's the kind of story I've heard from the people that I've spoken to. Okay, now you've got the book broken down to basically uh, five different 
sections. Is this the type of book that you can just jump into any section and say, oh, you know, part four, themes, that seems like what I should be into, or part five, application, maybe I should do that part first, or should they start from the beginning and, and run all the way through? Well, there's, there's five parts of the book. The first three parts of the book really take the model that emerged from the, um, all of the interviews and all of the research and really go through that in some detail and really attempt to bring it to life through the stories of the leaders that I spoke to. So if, if you're really interested in getting into the guts of the model, then I, I, would, I, would, I would follow parts one, two, and three in sequence. Um, part four is then sort of standing back and saying, well, okay, so what are some of the sort of broader themes that are emerging here? Um, and some of the, the themes that really emerge quite powerfully are, are, are a, a rather different perspective on what we mean by authenticity. And authenticity is a word that gets used lots and lots of times in the, when we talk about leadership. Um, a very different frame on resistance to change um, and also um, a different perspective on systems thinking. So part four is about some of those themes. The fifth part is about um, how so great, lovely, but so what? Um, how how can we use this stuff to put it into practice? And so part five, there's a bit of a case study about how this was used, how the how the models used in practice, and then some um, some some um, insights coming out of the research on how you might go about doing leadership development um, and and capability development generally. Mm. You know, it's it's kind of fascinating because uh, I've done a couple of books recently, and authority and authenticity seem to be this big thing that everybody's talking about right now. And you mentioned that the definition of authenticity was slightly skewed when you were researching the book and, and you basically had an aha moment. Tell us a little bit more about authenticity and, and for you, what is definition of it? Well, the insight for me was about a definition, and I'm not trying to privilege this definition over other definitions at all or, or suggesting that other definitions are, 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 are not as good. But what was insightful for me is this, this difference between authenticity and sincerity. Um, sincerity is if you ask me, so I'm a leader and I, I'm, I'm faced with a difficult, challenging situation, and, and so I decide to tell you, the team, what we're going to do next. And, I, and, I, and I'm really honest and open and transparent about that. That sometimes gets called authenticity. What um, comes out of the book is, is, as I said, this, I would, I would label that more sincerity. What the, what the premise of the book is, is that we, one of the premises is, is that we find out more and more about ourselves by doing stuff, by doing stuff, getting feedback on how we're being received, and then reflecting on that. And so the more reflective we are, then the more over time we find out about ourselves. And so authenticity is, is something that we can, we can actually take control of in terms of putting ourselves in, in difficult situations and making sure that we create the time to reflect on it, but it's ongoing. So, the, the, so, so authenticity uh, is about the extent to which I actually understand myself through reflecting on, on how I do stuff. And that's different to sincerity. Mm. Well, you know, also, it's very interesting because, you know, 
as a leader of an organization, you tend to be on the mature side. You've you've had a lot more life behind you, and when you're being authentic, it's based on a, a history of information compared to, uh, let's say, a young upstart, somebody that's done very well, maybe the dot-com money. And uh, yeah, he, he's a clever guy, and he's very smart, and he's made $350 million with his venture, but his authenticity is veneer thin. So, you know, managing under somebody like that or parallel to somebody like that is a completely different social and business experience, a day-to-day experience, compared to working with somebody that's a little bit more mature. And when you're sitting down, the type of advice, the uh, the type of um, things that he's communicating tend to have more weight to them and, and more authenticity. Yeah, I agree. I'll build on that, though, and say that I, I've, I've come across some leaders who are very mature, um, been around for a while, who are not necessarily terribly authentic because they're not terribly reflective and they, they haven't necessarily had a wide diverse of, diversity of experience. And on the flip side, I've come across some quite young leaders who are people who I would love to work for because they, they are very, I mean, they, they, they're not just open to feedback. They go looking for feedback. They are very reflective. And by reflective, I don't mean they sort of make time in their diary to reflect. They're just reflective. They are forever questioning um, you know what they're going to do, why they did that, what the impact was. So, so I agree with you. It tends to correlate with age, but it doesn't necessarily correlate with age. That's what I mean by there's an extent to which we, we have some influence and control over the extent to which we're authentic. Mm. Well, why do you think some people are just, are they naturally authentic or is it that the way that we're brought up or is it a combination of both? That's a good question. I think if we think about authenticity in those terms, then what we're talking about here is the extent to which I'm really open and willing to hear what others have to say about me. Um, And if that's an aspect of authenticity, then the barrier to that is that fear of, but I don't want to hear what they've got to say about me. Um, And that's probably the biggest obstacle. And is that kind of nature or nurture? Um, To to an extent, obviously, that's, that's a little bit hypothetical. But that's where I think you, you can encourage people to really think about not just what am I like, but why am I like that, so that people can bring that story and surface it. So at the end of the day, it doesn't, if, if, it's, if it's nature or nurture, it doesn't really matter. If people can find a story in there um, of their past experience in organizations or going back even further than that as to this is, this, is why, this is why I am the way I am, if you can bring that to their consciousness, then they can change it. Mm. Yeah, I remember working with a, a wonderful organization, and uh, they had these uh, amazing, amazing um, I don't know, facilitators would come in, and you know, we get a chance to really speak our heart to the leaders of the organization with no consequences. And there were some, you know, some heated developments and some things would sit across the table, but the facilitator would jump in and say, hey, look, at you know, this guy's trying to tell us what he thinks is wrong with the organization, and you as the leader have to listen to him in a non-emotional way and let's dissect it and find out is it something that's fundamentally wrong with the organization or is it the perception of the younger person or is it your problem and it was such an amazing experience to you know it was over three days and you watch these people and you would watch the younger people feel more confident about actually telling them how they were frustrated and would alleviate a lot of the problems that they had simmering away but then you would have the leaders actually trying to change and uh, they would become more humanized and you wouldn't be putting them on a, a pedestal. They would become approachable people, which is an incredibly powerful thing for an organization to have. 
Well, what you, you just hit straight at the heart of the heart of the, the model, which says uh, if an organisation wants to change, then uh, it'll change anyway. I mean, if 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 a leader tells me what what's going to happen and why, and I don't agree with it, then I don't necessarily comply. I, I'll go and find somebody else to engage in dialogue about it, someone who'll listen and someone who I'll feel safe talking about. So this whole mantra about tell, 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 which is what communicate, communicate, communicate often means, is actually detaching the leader from the change process. The, the kind of experience that you, you're relating is where change happens, which is where it, 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 that kind of dialogue will happen anyway. It's a question of will it happen by the coffee machine or is it going to happen, happen in a forum where everybody can participate, including the leadership? And if you can create in the organization those forums for safe dialogue, you're going to see change in your organization. And if the leaders are participating in that dialogue, they will have some influence over that change. Yeah, you know, it, it almost, that reminds me so much about, you know, I, I advise people on social media. That seems maybe a little off topic, but that's the whole thing is if you're going to get into social media, you have to understand that what you're communicating for your company has to be the core beliefs of the company. And if the CEO or the VP of communications is not available to you at you know by one call, you have to be able to get a hold of that person within thirty to forty seconds. Then your social media is on a basically on a train track for derailment in the future. You have to be able to get to the leaders. You have to be able to ask them to do uh, quality calls, and you know so many organizations don't get that fundamental part, and and it. Once again, if you're going to have an organization that wants to change and evolve, you have to get from the top down. You cannot just have uh, some arbitrary thing done and, oh, yeah, these guys, these managers are going to do it and it'll be great, except as the leadership, the C-suite or whatever, they never do that. So it's ironic and, and you know, basically, and I think it's like chapter four. Yeah, yeah, in chapter four, um, I probably, sorry, part four, chapter 11, resistance to change. Do you think this is what causes resistance to change? Resistance to change, that, that's, that's a really good, good one. Um, resistance to change is, it, as a term, is generally used by people higher up in the organization to describe the behavior of people lower down the organization when they don't do what they've just been told to do. Um, that's what tends to happen. And, and, and the leaders of the organization, they don't want resistance to change, they just want compliance. What how resistance to change kind of emerges in the stories is is something to go looking for and celebrate because resistance to change isn't, although it can often be clumsily expressed, isn't usually, I don't want to do it. Resistance to change is usually a, a rather clumsy request to, hey, I don't quite understand this. I, I, I have a different perspective on the organization just because I sit in a different part of the organization. What you're saying doesn't doesn't completely make sense to me. Can you help me understand that more? And so uh, some of the leaders I spoke to said, look, you need resistance to change because if you haven't got it, what you've got is complete indifference. And that's the last thing you want. So you want resistance to change and look for it and, and go and have the conversation. Um, and that's a very different approach to the approach that's kind of implicit to this message you see all the time, which is communicate, 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 because communicate has two meanings. It, it can mean to tell, to tell, to tell or to engage in dialogue. And usually, and certainly in the books, and I've, I've gone through a lot of the books, and, and communicate, communicate, communicate is about tell, tell, tell. It's about you need to tell your message 57 times for it to get through. Um, 
it's all about tell, tell, tell. It's not about go out there, listen, and have dialogue. And your, your piece around values, you know, the values of the organization is the same thing. A lot of organizations, they tell their, um, they tell their organizations what the values are going to be. Those are not the values of the company. What those are is some, some behavioral parameters that are being set by senior leaders that they expect people to comply to. That's very different to finding out what a company's values are. Um, so there's this fundamental difference between dialogue and monologue, which I don't think is, is really fully appreciated in many organizations. And, and it gets masked because you, know, you talked about this, this wonderful event where you had a facilitator opening up dialogue. Organizations sort of get that. And, and they have these forums, but they, they tend to come at them from a, from, a, from a standpoint that says, yes, but these people ultimately have to agree with what we've already decided. <laughs> and, and this wonderful phrase that I came – I certainly didn't invent it. I came across this phrase called facipulation, which I just love, which says, yeah, it's, it's facilitation, but it's manipulation. Um, so, so that, so that, that – and, and so, of course, if you go to a facipulated event – um, and you're here, you're being told or you're being told what to do, but you don't really agree with it and you don't feel safe. Um, what happens is you, you, you kind of got, you might gently push back. And if that's not received well, which it often isn't, then you'll just, you'll just nod, gent, nod and go away, but you're not going to comply with it. And, and that's, that again is that resistance to change that hasn't been picked up and, and really, um, embraced and, and then moved on into that kind of a dialogue from which really powerful change does emerge. Well, you know, it's very interesting because you see, you know, uh, the person will agree but not comply. And then there's the next thing is, well, they'll they'll do it, but they're not going to do it and be enthused about doing it. They're, they're not energized by it. They're actually, they lose energy and they feel disgruntled and they don't want to get up and go to work. And companies, that's profit right there. If you've got an on-fire company, you know, okay, 80% if you're lucky, but if everybody's on fire and really excited about what they're doing and think they're do what they're doing is critically important to the success of the company and then ultimately to the success of their life, then that company has a tremendously unfair advantage over everybody else in that industry unless there's another company that's on fire. So I think it's all about, you know, telling companies that you've got to do this because that gives you a competitive advantage. I agree with you. I mean, the, the, if you think about engagement, not just in a work context, but just a life context, one of the things that, um, that we have a fundamental basic need, which is we want to be heard. We want to be heard. It's, it's through being heard that we are recognized as, as being a human being. And so if I'm working in an organization where I just don't feel heard, of course, I'm not going to be energized. And, and if I want to really energize an organization, then, then, you know, Really going back to basics, one of the things we can think about is how can we actually uh, create an, an environment in which people feel heard? And that's the difference between dialogue and monologue again. Hmm. It's, it's interesting because we, we're actually touching on, on part three, the power and politics of an organization. Um, I'm going to skip over that part because we kind of covered, but I really love part two, our perspective, purpose, and identity. Let's talk a little bit about identity because I really think most organizations or at least people in an organization have no idea that that organization has an identity or a perception in the real world. Yeah. So the piece around identity is if you, if the, the model is saying if you, if you want to get an organization aligned around a, a future vision, then the place to start is 
here and now because people have got very different perspectives on the here and now. And once you've got people to actually understand each other's perspectives on the here and now, then you can really get into a great conversation around the future. That, however, isn't enough. And that's where the identity piece comes in. Um, so to, to, to illustrate this, I might work in a bank. Okay, I work in a bank and, and I work on the till and I serve customers every day. And then the, the head office tells me, okay, we need, to make, you know, we need to make more profit here. So what we want you to do is we want you to sell a loan with that, you know, a bit like sort of McDonald's. I'm not being sort of facetious, but, but a bit like the sort of McDonald's piece around, you know, if they, if they come in for a, a wanting a turn deposit, well, see if they want some insurance instead. And it makes absolute logical sense. But if, if I'm sitting there standing on the front line and I try this and the customer just gives me that look which says, hey, I thought we were having a, a really good conversation here, but now you're doing that kind of, um, you're doing that salesy thing on me, then I'm going to feel uncomfortable because it's, it, it actually is, um, it's, it's hitting my identity because my identity and the reason I come to work is I love helping people. I don't love trying to just sell this stuff they don't really want. So, so it, that's what's getting in the way. And this is not a kind of, in, and of course the, 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 the head office people are going, well, but that doesn't make sense. Of course, it makes sense to sell this with this with this. What they're not necessarily paying attention to is the, the individual's identity, which may actually also reflect the identity of the team in that branch and which may actually represent the organizational identity as a whole in terms of at least the people who are working on the front line. So we have to understand that identity in order to then be able to message that differently in a way that's going to be um, – um, embraced um so identity we have to go looking for identity rather than telling organizations what their identity is by you know sticking values on the wall the best place to start in any sort of culture work any culture change work any values work is fight your organization's already got an identity go find out what it is because that's going to really help you as the leader of that organization work out how to influence that organization in moving in a different direction Mm. Well, I, I think a lot of organizations fail, and, and you said it perfectly when you said, you know, a bunch of posters on the wall. They slap a poster on the wall, or they slap, this is our meaning in life as far as the organization is concerned. But then they don't spend any time with somebody coming in and talking to individual people and saying, how do you interpret this? How can you fit this philosophy into your life so it becomes a part of your life? And, and when you come in, the the reason you do your things is in total alignment with what our values are, but it's completely different from the guy that's next to you. And, uh, you know, you, you were, it reminds me of the difference between sales and information. It's their uh, head office is selling you something, saying, this is what you need. This is, you know, we need you to do this. And they're pushing it. Whereas information is, they're saying, here's the information. How can how do you interpret this information and how can we make it an important part of your life? Yeah, and you used to, you, I agree with you, and you use the sales piece. And um, there are some really good sales organizations, which, which, which th there's some real wisdom in there, which, which, which is beyond sales. Because uh, what, you know, what's good sales people tell me is you don't go in there and just pitch your product. You go in there and you find out what the, you really get to understand the customer's business and what it is they need. And, and that understanding helps you work out how you can be helpful. And it's the same principle, but applied to within an organization. Mm. Now, you interviewed a whole pile of people to get the, you know, basically the backbone to this book. What was, and this is a totally unfair question, mm. what was your favorite interview and why? 
I have two responses. And one is, is that I absolutely loved every interview. The reason that all of the people who I spoke to, that their names and organizations are confidential is that I, I was, people shared with me stuff that, um, you don't necessarily get to read a lot in, in, in articles and so on because it's sensitive. So I was, I felt actually really privileged by the people that I spoke to in, 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 cause many of those people, most of those people, I had never met them before. I got to know, I got to meet, meet them through referrals. I, I was, I was absolutely blown away by the extent to which people really shared stuff with me that, that, that really helped me understand where they were coming from. The, the story that, um, so there is no one story, but the story that really does, stick in my mind because it's so close to home is a story of and this wasn't a ceo this was somebody working in um, an indigenous community here in australia um and of course australia has its own um, whole history of 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 you know people coming in and, and the indigenous communities um but there's a community the story was about a community in australia where the number of deaths on the road is three times the national average and the proportion of people who actually die is disproportionately indigenous. Um, and the story, and, and, and many aspects of this story are in the public domain. Um, obviously, the, 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 the relevant government department wanted to do something about that. Of course they did. And, and so what they did was they went out to, they, they went global in terms of trying to find what's the best ever road safety campaign that's ever been done. And they came up with one, I think it was from somewhere in Europe, um, and it had all sorts of aspects to it, which included competitions and, and getting the police involved and, 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 and helping people to do their own kind of safety. It was, it was really quite um, comprehensive, and, and it had worked hugely successfully in, in another market, another country. And so they, they implemented it in, in that community, and it had no impact. And the person who I was speaking to said, well, here's why it didn't work. It didn't work because, um, firstly, people in that community, the last place they're going to go is the police station for historical reasons. Um, they are not about to take their car to the nearest service centre to get its spot checked because the nearest service centre is about 120 kilometres away. They used to be one about 10 kilometres away, but it closed down because of lack of business. And then she told me about this whole bush mechanics uh, phenomenon, which, which and there's a, there was a lovely um, ABC series on that, which you can find on YouTube, which is part of the culture of that community is in, in a community which where there's not a lot of work and so on is the males take a lot of pride in their ability through huge innovation and creativity to keep their cars going no matter what. And so you get a puncture, well, you, you, you can't afford it. There's nowhere to go to get a new tire. You fill that tire full of clothes to keep the tire going. If you need a tow bar, use the safety belt. In, in one of the, um, the seat belt, in, in one of the um, videos I saw, the, this car just cogged out because there was a hole in the radiator. So they, they got a hubcap, they heated it over a fire, they got some other component from the engine, heated it up, plugged the radiator cap, and on they went. So that, that, that for me was, it's, it's quite an extreme story, but it, it captured this whole point around the importance of actually engaging with the people who you want to influence to really understand their perspective and where they're coming from, and using that insight 
to then come up with your own view and to inform your own view as to where you stand on what can successfully happen next. Because what this, this government department did was massively well-intentioned and made a lot of logical sense. You know, it's all this best-in-class stuff. But what they didn't really do sufficiently was to go out in that community and listen and seek to understand. And actually, that reminds me, you know, this whole seek to understand this listening piece, again, it's at the heart of dialogue and it's not new. Stephen Covey had talked about, you know, seek first to to to, to understand. But it, I think what, what for me really came out of doing the book is just how central that is in dialogue, that that capacity to listen and understand that's 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 that sits right at the heart of change. Mm. Well, you know, that's fascinating because um listening or the ability to listen authentically is probably one of the biggest skills a manager can have to be able to sit down with somebody or with a group of people and say, okay, what's the problem? Where are you frustrated? Or why are we having this constant, why are we always behind deadline? And to actually get real feedback and listen and say, okay, now that we have the problem, let's put some ingenuity together and figure it out ourselves instead of me just coming in and say, hey, if you guys don't get this done, I'm going to dock your pay. If you don't get this gun done, you're going to be working late. That's dictating a solution that has no revel- relevance to reality. And people pick up on that. But if you sit down with them and say, hey, I'm listening, and then they everybody works together for the solution, then there's ownership. And if you own something, you understand uh, what you're doing at a fundamental level compared to here's a procedure, study the procedure, do the procedure. You don't really have a gut level understanding of that procedure. Yeah, and I like I like the way you use the phrase authentic listening because what 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 often gets in the way of listening is um, this has to be sorted out by two o'clock or we have to we, I already kind of know what we need to do otherwise this is just going to create lots of um, trouble in the organisation or look I I think I'm the one that's supposed to know the answer here so so I don't want to be contradicted. It's with authenticity that people become and that that real understanding and self-awareness and confidence comes courage, which includes the courage to genuinely, openly listen to somebody. It's a, it, I agree with you. It's a really massively underrated um, skill. Now, this is a question I asked. I kind of asked it earlier on, but this is fundamentally when you were putting this book together, you were doing all these amazing interviews. Was there an aha moment for you where something you already knew was a truth? Uh, suddenly uh, became a reality right down to your core and you went, aha, now I get that. Um, there were quite a few. And I think the <laughs> um, the biggest one is the one I said before is, oh, my God, oh, this communicate, communicate, communicate piece that you read time and time again. And and someone did a literature review on this and, and said, and, and, and I think it was the top 200 selling books and articles on change. And they, they all talk about the importance of voicing and telling people what needs to happen and, and, and repeat, 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 repeat. The word listen showed up about three or four times. That our change texts, a lot of them are telling us to do something which is actually completely counterproductive. It's taking us out of the dialogue and taking us away from the change process. So that, that, was, a, that was probably the massive um, moment for me. Um, but there were others as well. I mean, there was the, what I called the paradox. And it's you, you read, again, in some other texts about I, as a leader, have a choice here about the extent to which I get my people involved in um, visioning. 
and I can talk, I can actually get them involved, we can co-create, or I can just tell, tell, tell. And if I tell, 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 that's going to be less engaging, and if I get them involved, that's going to be more engaging. And what I found with this paradox, because I found a couple of leaders who said, yeah, but we already kind of knew what the answer was before we went into an organization. And yet the story they told they really got everybody engaged. And I heard other stories where they went in and they said, yeah, we'll have all these big workshops, we'll get everybody engaged, and the change wasn't so effective. So I thought, what's going on here? And what was going on was, again, another aha moment, is we've got to be really careful about uh, where in our own mental constructs we put the boundaries here because what was actually happening was some of these leaders who were coming in supposedly with preformed ideas, they weren't preformed ideas, it was – they had engaged in dialogue, but with people outside the organization. Um, who, and so they'd engaged in plenty of dialogue to come up with this clarity of vision, which they finally intuitively thought, yes, that's right. And when they went into the organization, supposedly with this preformed idea, they, when, I, when, I, when I probed them further, they said, no, look, yeah, we thought we, we, we were pretty confident we knew what was right, but we were still engaging in dialogue. And had we heard from somebody in the organization that we got it wrong, of course, we would have rethought. And so it, it, in my own mind, it kind of thought, oh, of course, yes. The, it, we, 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 we actually restrain ourselves and li limit ourselves in, in terms of the way we go about doing change management by, by putting these boundaries around everything. I think also with an organization, if you're a cog in that organization, regardless of what level you are, um, you, you have the tendency to not speak up because then you're going to be saddled with the responsibility and it's going to become a problem that you're going to have to deal with. Uh, and I find that fascinating at meetings or in lectures, after you get somebody to actually ask one question, you get somebody to ask a second question, suddenly everybody wants to ask a question and you usually go over time. But the what what causes people to hold back and not ask questions during the meeting? I mean, the, especially the higher up the person is, the less people want to get involved with actually pointing something out. Is it a fear factor? Is it something based on their upbringing with a father figure? You can never question them. What is it? Well, of course, there may be many factors, but the, the one that springs to mind from the stories is um, – is what change the word change often means in organizations. And, and if historically in an organization, change programs are those programs when we get told what needs to happen and we don't really get a voice, then I'm going to keep quiet because if I don't, I'm going to get, to use your phrase, I'm going to get saddled with something that I actually don't have a lot of enthusiasm around. Now, what, what, what a few of the people I interviewed said was, we don't use the word change. We don't have change programs. That's the last thing you want to do because when, when you, you use that word change program in our organization because of the history of our organization, people get anxious. And, and what they're getting anxious about is something's going to happen here that I'm not going to be able to influence. So if instead of that, let's say you're doing a customer service program, you want to change customers. Instead of having a change program or a customer service, what you do is you go out to the organization and say, hey, how can we be more customer centric? And then all of a sudden, people get excited. Because, yeah, we want to, you know, wouldn't it be great if our customers are happier? Because, you know, when they're happier, we're happier. And so you're, 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 going, you're, you're actually going straight to the purpose of the thing rather than having a change program. So, for in the, so for the first thing is you're getting excited about an actual outcome that, that is meaningful to you. But secondly, the way it's being conveyed to you is it starts with a, hey, what do you think? So I think I'm going to be listened to here. Yeah, it also reminds me of, when companies do research, they don't actually ask the people on the front lines, hey, why are our customers so 
dissatisfied, they actually go to somewhere outside of the company and get them to do research, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But they just have this thing about why would we ask the sales guys because they're always bitching and complaining that we don't give them enough tools or it'll just become another excuse for them not to do a good job. And I just think that's just a, such a pathetic way of looking at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and conversely, there are some organizations, a few organizations where they do go out and ask ask the people who actually talk to the customers um, about their perspective on those customers and and those customer and those organizations um have much more are much more likely to be successful in the marketplace it kind of comes back to what you were saying before i think mm. Yeah, it's you know you would get such great insight of where to put your revenues, where to put your budgets. I mean, if if you interviewed a bunch of people and you say, well, the customers just frustrate us because they ask too many stupid questions. I don't think that happens much any, anymore because everybody self researches. But if that's the case, then you should be putting more of your money not into um, advertising that tells you what to do, but more on the educational side and and try and have seminars and teach people about the product a little bit more or get them enthused about the product. And then when they come to the salesperson, it's more detailed, more difficult questions, which will, you know, definitely makes it more interesting for the, uh, for the sales team or customer service, same type of thing. You know, what's the fundamental thing that everybody seems to be complaining about and then addressing that particular thing. And maybe it's R and D instead of more advertising. Yeah, and, and and if you do, if you if you if customers are complaining, and you go and ask people about why they're complaining, you're straight into a place where people generally are re- you know are really um, are going to be really engaged and 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 really committed to to do something about it because nobody enjoys talking to angry customers. Mm. Well, it's you know there is a bit of a, a a paradigm shift here too because of social media people have the a platform where they can communicate to you know tens of people or sometimes tens of thousands of people and complain about a restaurant through these platforms that are available and some people tend to use bully tactics or they kind of lose perspective and, and a lot of times when I'm talking with with clients they're saying how do we battle this how do we overcome these people attacking us and my answer every time is like, have you bothered picking up the phone and contacting them and calling them and having them apologizing and then offering them something and try and listen to them and then fix the problem and then tell them publicly, oh, by the way, customer X complained about this. We checked it out and they were right and we fixed it. Come on down and check it out. That's a huge, huge promotional campaign, but nobody seems to get it. I don't know why. No, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, 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 I look at social media sometimes and you look at these kind of sites uh, for, for uh, travel and hotels and things, and, and often you do get the hotelier coming in online to address some um, complaints, but it tends to be, it, however politely it's expressed, it, it, it tends to be quite defensive. Um, well, it's not authentic. Ex- yes, yeah, not authentic, because the, the, but it is sincere, but it's not authentic. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's the fear of organizations to be duped or taken advantage of, and and I think when if it was explained to them the amount of money that they could gain by giving some stuff away and actually having a whole team of incredible authentic people, uh, I think it's called uh, customer retention departments for phone companies where people threaten to pull the plug on their mobile phone. That's where you're going to get your attention. That's where they're going to offer you the best deal, not at the customer service level. So it's almost like, why 
Do you even have customer service levels? Why don't you have customer retention departments? And just cut out that middle person that's just frustrating people. Yeah, uh, with, with the principle being listening, and 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 on top of that, I mean, the the the, the only bit that triggers with me a little bit is as long as that's done well. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> if if you set up a customer retention department and say, hey, right, those guys are responsible for retaining customers, and we don't need to worry. Um, it, it's about that 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 kind of organisational wide commitment to listening and to engaging in dialogue that I think is. Um, uh, is, is what, what helps organizations to be successful. As, as you said right at the beginning of this conversation, as, as demonstrated by the senior leadership of the organization. Mm. Yeah, it has to be a, right through from the top to the bottom for it to actually be have that type of impact. It can't be just one rogue department or, or over-efficient department that uh, drives the whole company. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of ironic because, you know, Google they make billions of dollars and I think there's only 35 or 65 people that create those billions of dollars through AdWords because it's all automated and all the other people are taking that huge cash flow and, and experimenting with stuff and, and going in there and disrupting different industries to try and restart them and, and get them to do better things. Do you think that's a good philosophy to have in, in an organization where not only they're into change, but they're also into changing the world around them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, it, for me, it just reminds me of, of again the difference between the, the real values of an organisation and 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 the imposed values of an organisation. And um, I think even by um, very simply uh, committing to paying attention to what people enjoy about working for the organisation and, and what's important to them, just by paying attention to that um, means that. Um, you, you you will end up having a dialogue around that, and people other people will want to engage in that dialogue, be it within the company or prospective employees or customers, um, and and it's recognised as being authentic. So, for our listening audience, what should they do today to improve their company, help evolve their company? Um, well, if dialogue sits at the heart of change, dialogue on on action, then. What, what anybody can do is to, um, firstly, pay attention to what other people, really try and deeply listen to what other people have to say because you're always going to be more effective and it doesn't matter what level of the organization you're in. If you're, if you're sitting right, you, 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 if you see yourself as somebody not terribly senior in an organization and you want to get on better with your boss, well, it's listen to your boss. Um, really try and understand where your boss is coming from. So that, that piece around listening to other people, I think, sits at the heart of leadership and at the heart of change. Um, finding ways of really saying what you think in a way that, that, that is well received. Um, again, as, you, as we said before, people can often tend to sit on what they, um, what they believe and, and not share it with others. So find ways of actually being, be voicing that. Making the time to reflect on the conversations that you've had on things that have happened in the organization, really making that time to reflect. In a lot of organizations that I'm working with at the moment, it's so busy. People get sucked in, sucked in, sucked into the day-to-day. -day. They, they, they start the day with a checklist of 20 things to do, and, and they're, they're solely focused on ticking off as many boxes as they can. Making that time to think, oh, why are we doing what we're doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? How could I be doing things differently? 
So that time, making that time to reflect as well. I think the reflecting, the listening and the voicing, if you can improve um, and enhance the way that you, you show up in those three domains, you will be a much more effective leader. You will have a, 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 a real impact on the people around you and you're making your contribution to the, the effectiveness of the organization. Uh, where can people go to find out more about the book or uh, do some more research? Do you have a blog? So I do have a little blog on LinkedIn. Um, so, so people can go to LinkedIn mm-hmm. um, or they can buy the book. Or if they don't want to buy the book, but they'd like to um, nevertheless um, get, a, get an understanding of it, uh, there, I, there is an article, an academic article coming out on the book through the Journal of Change Management. Um, and I, I can share that, that with people. So, or, or people can just contact me. I'm more than happy for people to contact me directly. Very nice. We've been chatting with Paul Lawrence today, Leading Change, How Successful Leaders Approach Change Management. And uh, for sure, this is a very authentic book to talk about one of the words we discussed. Thanks for being on the show, Paul. Thanks very much, Paul. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week. 